The Incomparable Number 421 August 2018 Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. The summer of Marvel. Oh, so close to the conclusion now. So close. But before we go, one of the things I wanted to do was pay a little revisit to a group that we have not talked about yet, really, in this whole series, because we covered their movies originally when they came out. And that's the Guardians of the Galaxy, who, of course, when the Guardians of the Galaxy movie first came out in 2014, nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew who these people were. This as obscure a comic book set of heroes as you could get. Uh, you like just who are they? What is that? Like nobody knew anything about it. And actually, it was quite successful, and people really liked it. And then there is also a sequel, and then those characters also appear prominently in Avengers: Infinity War, which came out earlier this year. So we are going to sort of revisit the Guardians of the Galaxy and talk about uh, with a little bit of hindsight of uh, four years for one movie and a year for the other. Uh, how we feel about these films and about the characters and about how they were used in the greater Marvel universe with Infinity War. To join me for this episode, Revisiting the Guardians of the Galaxy, I have three wonderful people with me. Lisa Schmeiser is here. Hello. Hi there. I'm so happy to be here to discuss my favorite beautiful space idiots. I'm just All thrilled right. to do this podcast. Excellent. Excellent. Quinn Rose is also here. Hello. Hello. Very excited to be here. And David J. Laura is here too. Hello. Hi. Um, it's a little warm because I'm cosplaying as Rocket right now, so I'm in, I'm in like a full-length raccoon outfit. All and right. It's, actually, it's just a raccoon coat. Uh, stop, 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 stop. This is not being comparable after dark. <laughs> Thank you, noble rabbit. <laughs> so Guardians of the Galaxy 1 took, definitely took people by surprise in 2014 because these are characters nobody's ever heard of. And um, it was tonally very different from what had come before. If you think about the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we have been thinking about that a lot this summer, this is the movie that came after Winter Soldier and Thor 2 and Iron Man 3, but it came before Ant-Man and Doctor Strange and Spider-Man Homecoming and Thor Ragnarok. And um, so... One of the things I wanted to bring up is the tone. So James Gunn presumably brought a lot of that tone and personality to it. He took over as director, rewrote parts of the screenplay. So he's got Nicole Perlman, who worked on the screenplay for a very long time, um, is credited as the co-author of it with James Gunn. Because my impression is that James Gunn basically took it and then he did a he did a rewrite pass. And uh, spoilers for my feelings about this movie. In watching it now, after after four years of remove, it feels like a screenplay that a director came in and did a pass on and then just shot it because some of it feels kind of not kind of kind of ramshackle in a way like he 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 did some stuff that's very interesting and clever. But there's also parts that are like, I'm not quite sure why that happened. Um, but it definitely brought the tone. And I want to start with the tone because um, it it doesn't like. This what was what's great about this movie is that it was so different. It is not only a just completely sci-fi movie in a way that none of the Marvel movies were before, and it's the first movie that really showed the range of the MCU to say, we could do this totally other genre, and you'll kind of come along with us. This isn't really a superhero movie so much as a sci-fi movie. But the music and the comedy and the kind of edgier attitudes that are in here from some of the previous movies definitely 
uh, I think, influential. And you see it in those other movies. You see it in the Ant-Man and Thor Ragnarok and even Doctor Strange, where the tone is... Uh, a lot less serious and and I, I think Guardians of the Galaxy uh, was influential in that and at the time was just such a big a big change to have that so I, I want to start there if you've got any thoughts about sort of like the tone of this movie how, how it's I do yeah I do yes, have Lisa, share, please. <laughs> <laughs> no when I was so mm-hmm. I rewatched the movies um, over the weekend and when we started Guardians of the Galaxy I marveled at what they managed to do because you think about it in the first few moments of Guardians of the Galaxy, you have what is arguably like a Steven Spielberg horror sequence set up to life because you've got this child who watches his mother die. He runs outside to grieve. He's immediately abducted by a spaceship. And (laughs) then you move to a really dark and grim looking dystopic abandoned planet. And you're like, oh my God, this is some heavy stuff. And and like you said, Jason, it's coming (laughs) off of a civil war, not civil war, excuse me, it's coming off of Winter Soldier. It's coming off of like the Thor movie that like they fired the lighting crew on the first day of shooting and never replace them that movie the Um, dark (laughs) world and we mean dark yeah it's coming off of iron man 3 which is basically tony stark has ptsd in the backwoods um and so i was like oh you're watching this you're like oh my god this is this is like the the chronicles of riddick and then next thing you know on goes the music and chris pratt is busy dancing across the floor holding one of those nasty little animals in his hand like a microphone (laughs) who lip syncs his way to a con job and i love it i love it so Mm -hmm. much because it abs it it just announces we are shaking off all of the conventions of your stupid space genre we are shaking off all of the conventions where there's a lot of stakes and people are very serious as the credits roll and things are gonna get loose and loopy and I enjoy that that th- that through line continues all the way through the movie. Like it's just there are there are parts of that movie that read like the Looney Tunes, and I love it. <laughs> and what I love is how deftly James Gunn flips the switch from one thing to another. Uh, you know, with with this horrible child abduction, grieving child abduction sequence, and then at this big grounding part of the movie he manages to recast Peter's moment of trauma where he finally grows up, gets past that and opens his heart to the power of friendship. And uh, it's, it's just a really nice structure. And I could not be happier about the way that the tone and the structure work in, in, in the first movie. I fell in love with it right off the bat because it's the first Marvel movie that takes sort of a cosmic view. Yes. So right there, it's different. And, and yeah, it's just funny. As soon as the music started up, I just started smiling and I don't usually react to movies like that. I just smiled through most of this movie. I mean, I was on the first episode about this because I mm-hmm. loved it so much. I also think it's really interesting in retrospect, the having Chris Pratt as the lead. And I think that's really connected to the tone because pre guardians, the thing that Chris Pratt was best known for was being Andy Dwyer on parks and rec. And he was this comedy actor. And now he's been in the lead in guardians and he's been in the lead in Jurassic world. And so he's had these big action movie star roles, but they are all still have this foundation in comedy. And I think that really affects like what he brings to the role and how we view these movies. Yeah, he he is uh at the time it was a incredibly unlikely 
casting role and i remember when he returned to parks and rec for the next season after he shot this movie and they had to explain stop like drinking beer yeah why, yeah. why does andy have beer. muscles it's unlikely and yet um i, I do think it's a it's a it's a fun casting choice and the thing i was going to say and I, I realized that there are not a lot of parallels to draw here but i will draw because the movie draws it like the beginning of this movie is basically saying hey this guy's kind of Indiana Jones in space. Mm. And there is something to, again, Peter Quill is not Indiana Jones, but he is mm-hmm. looking for a an archaeological item to steal. Um, and so he's kind of roguish and he is, he can be hurt and he's not like a super action hero out of central casting. You get the sense that he's kind of, mm-hmm. I think one of the strengths of Indiana Jones is that he is so vulnerable and you see him get beat up and stuff like that. And there is a little bit of a line to be drawn there and having Chris Pratt do it, he's kind of like, you know, this likable doofus who you're like, well, you're stealing stuff in space, huh? Okay. Right. Like there is something that you get when you cast him that uh that it definitely sets off that that kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark same kind of thing where it's like this is kind of a I want to root for him a little bit more because he feels a little out of his depth and I like that like right. that he's a vulnerable hero <laughs> one of the things I really like about the first movie is how much they play with all of the leading man space tropes and all the leading man action tropes where no one can remember to call him Star Lord. Everybody has like, like when when John C. O'Reilly is, it's Star Prince, and he's all no. Um, I I enjoy that so many. He's not the coolest guy in the room, and he's never going to be the coolest guy in the room, no matter how hard he tries. He does not do well with women, <laughs> no matter how much pelvic sorcery he employs. He is outthought by a raccoon in a tree on multiple occasions. <laughs> wow, that's harsh when you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but what I like about it is it was also a nice inversion of the trope that we had seen in all of the standalone Marvel movies, and even in some, and even in the Avengers as an ensemble film. Because in the Avengers, the only – and bear in mind, this is when the original Avengers had come out. I, I don't think we had seen Ultron yet. I think that was the next movie. Even with the original Avengers, arguably the weakest member of the ensemble is weak only because he got bat between the eyes by an Infinity Stone. And that's going to that's gonna put the whammy on anybody. Um, so you have all of these invulnerable people coming up against feels and social situations. And then you get Star-Lord, who is just a, who's just a beautiful space idiot. And <laughs> I really loved <laughs> – I really loved that the whole movie just relentlessly punctures all of the tropes. He's the anti-Han Solo that way, because mm. there's no way he's... Like, if, if Gamora were to say, I love you, he'd never say, I know. He would drop whatever he was holding and be like, really? Um, <laughs> and and I he's, love he's Han with no chill. <laughs> yeah, he's... he's <laughs> and and I like that's what I like about the first movie, and that's actually one of my complaints about the second movie, is the second movie feels more like a Peter Quill and his friends zip around movie. Mm. And... I have a little, I have, if we start talking about the second movie, I'll meh about that. Yeah, we'll get but there. In, but in the first movie, I really love how he can't do anything without these people helping him. And the one thing he brings to the table is they bond over their shared contempt for him. And he manages to, <laughs> and he manages to parlay that into a level of empathy and to, and to puncture their ver- various idiot, various idiosyncrasies and figure out how to make them work. Like there's that scene where rocket is screaming, why would I want to save the galaxy? What has it ever done? Why do you want to save it? He's like, cause I'm one of the idiots who lives in it. And like, 
that is exactly what he needed to say in the moment. So I like that Peter Quill's heroic qualities are not tied to machismo. They're not tied to cool. They're not tied to being super competent. They're not tied to, tied to strength. They're not tied to brains. They're tied to an ability to connect with somebody, however begrudgingly that other person wants to connect. Um, cause, you know, you see it with the Nova Corps too, where he calls them and he's like, Hey, I may be, uh, I may be a something, but I'm not an a-hole. And they pass on the message and you can see them all wincing, but they took the call from Peter Quill and they acted on it. And I, I like that he modeled that kind of hero where he doesn't punch his way into being right. He gets punched a lot instead. <laughs> right. Right. I, the, the moment, um, very comic book moment where Jaiman Hunsu says at the end, he goes, Star Lord, right? And he's like, yes! And he's like, yes, <laughs> right, finally. <laughs> and and it is, so it's like, it's the comic book moment, but it's undercut by the fact that he's been trying so hard for somebody to call him that, and finally yes, somebody remembers yes, his name. It's yes. good. It's a good moment. <laughs> it's a great moment. Well, Jaiman, you, you brought up one of my complaints, because it's not all, oh, beautiful. Um, One of my complaints is, they threw so many actors into this movie. It's like, the, and, and we were watching this parade of people that they just wasted, because Glenn Close is in for like less than five minutes and um john c Riley and peter serfinowicz yeah. pace lee pace he's oh, a great lee actor pa- <sighs> one of our most expressive actors and they bury him we oh. we've debated this the whole summer of marvel i'm just gonna say it now <laughs> yeah ronan is the worst marvel villain yeah he's boring he commits this into being boring apparently he was supposed to be thanos and then mm-hmm. they had to rewrite the script because they're like no 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 no. we have plans for thanos you can't have it be thanos and so it's like oh i've got Thanos' daughters, but I'm not Thanos anymore. I work for him, sort of, but sort of not. And I, I am. A, they called me a terrorist, but he, he kind of has nothing to do. And it, yeah, uh, it's so bad. I think Lee Pace is a really great, expressive, interesting mm-hmm. actor. And here, and he, they buried him under he's face paint. Buried. Yeah, he, uh. it's. And he's not scary. He just and he yeah. and he he has to he's bear just purple. To 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 be fair, yeah. he has to bear the plot load here. Which I, I was going <laughs> to say, you mentioned Cosmic Marvel. Cosmic Marvel. Um, I keep trying it, but like so much of it is just crushingly boring and complicated. And Ronan mm. wears all of that. Ronan basically has to say, "Oh well, the Kree and the Nova Corps and blah blah blah." And like he has to come up with reasons to that, that he's doing things to push the plot forward. And it's it's all there in the dialogue if you watch the movie five yeah. times you can see it all but it's boring and not and it like yeah there's no reason for it to be there he's just a baddie who is you know why is he doing what he's doing because it's necessary and it's, it's, what, it's just such a squandering of potential yeah. like it's it's a bad villain and it's badly written and nobody could have played that part well but you get lee pace an actor who is so expressive he walked off with all three hobbit movies with like one shot on the back of a moose and like <laughs> why which it's like it's like when they did and this is not summer of marvel this is summer of marvel fox deals um it's like when they buried oscar isaac under all of that face paint for um age of apocalypse it doesn't work it doesn't work just just stop and it's a bad sign when literally everybody else in the movie who is vaguely menacing seems like a bigger threat like nebula or yondu (laughs) oh my goodness you are not gonna believe this sponsor i just you gotta listen to this sponsor it is unlike any other it is very exciting this episode of the incomparable is brought to you by inboard technology they are the geniuses behind the motorized m1 skateboard a flagship m1 e-board is set apart from the pack 
by innovative industry-leading features and a sleek yet rugged design. It's got the world's first truly swappable battery for an electric skateboard. Put an extra battery in your bag and swap while on the go. The remote has a simple, intuitive design. The safety trigger means you don't have to worry about any accidental takeoffs. And the Inboard Vision mobile app controls every aspect of the board and even lets your mobile device be used as a throttle. It provides regular firmware updates to your M1 for the highest performing torque, hill climbing efficiency, and way more. You can seriously upgrade your commute with one of these skateboards. Forget spending ages stuck in traffic or looking for a parking space. Pick up your board and head to work. And if your commute is just fine, you might just want a fun way to get around your neighborhood. It's great for that. Now, that was all exciting, but this is the most exciting part of all. I'm going to throw it live to Mike Hurley, who is on this skateboard right now. So I was excited about this, but I've never ridden a skateboard before. And this thing is actually a a lot of fun. I'm very excited about it. I've been looking forward to riding this thing. It's really smooth. I feel like I have good control of the speed. I love the safety features. I love that it has lights on it. I love the way the remote feels and works. I am very excited to spend more time with this thing. I want to get good. I want to ride around the streets with it. For a limited time only, you can save $100 on your purchase of the M1 eBoard by heading to inboardtechnology.com and using the code incomparable100 at checkout. Get the board, try it for 14 days. If it's not for you, send it back. With that easy return policy, if you've always wanted to try out one of these motorized boards, now is the time. Inboardtechnology.com, use the code incomparable100. You'll save $100 for a limited time. Go there now, you won't regret it. Thank you to Inboard Technology for their support of the incomparable. And thanks to Mike for riding that skateboard. Okay, I want to talk about Peter Quill's character a little bit. I think it's a little confused. I think this, the movie is a little confused about it because there's a funny joke that is that he goes through the whole opening scene and then as he's finally escaping in his spaceship it turns out that there's a basically half-naked woman in the spaceship who he doesn't remember her name and she's still there and i've i've heard people complain about that and it's like you know what the problem is not that she's there because it's kind of a funny joke that he is this bad at his job or what he passes for a job that he's brought her along in a dangerous situation and not told her what's going on and 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 that he's obviously this kind of he's sleeping around with various Mm -hmm. various space ladies which he talks about later my issue with it is we never really see peter progress as a person like all of a sudden Mm -hmm. there's a scene later where there's music playing and he tries to hold gamora's hand but like the movie makes no real effort to show him progress as a human being from scene one to really to the point where he i mean he does sacrifice himself but in terms of his relationship with women especially like the Mm -hmm. movie makes zero effort and that's actually the problem i have with with that being a joke at the beginning is that it doesn't like he it doesn't go anywhere he doesn't he doesn't learn he doesn't say oh i can't treat gamora like you this. don't see him shooting down another woman at the end There's of the movie nothing. Or like that. i think nothing. the only growth he had was from somebody who had never really dealt with simultaneously being abandoned by and abandoning his mother because he's that he'll take my hand and he doesn't and he runs away and then at the end of the and then at the end of the movie when he sees his mother and she's all take my hand and he takes people's hands and that's the power of friendship and all that like I think that's literally all of the growth he's allowed in the movie. And the whole point is he finally like forgives himself and he's able to grow beyond being a wounded nine-year-old or what have you. But I absolutely mm-hmm. concur with your point that we don't ever see him progress as somebody who wouldn't 
forget that he had a lady on the spaceship and be like, oh, hey, before I drop you off, I just have to do this one thing real quick. Right. Like, Gamora <laughs> doesn't ever smack him down and be like, you can't treat me like this. Like, that just, it just mm-hmm. really never happens. He just doesn't. Yeah. And, and I think part of the problem with both of them, both of the movies, that is, is that uh, I think we're supposed to be kind of in love with him as a lovable space doofus right from the start. So yeah, why should yeah. he change? If the if if Gunn is in love with who he is as, at this point, it's like, well, because he doesn't really change or grow. Well, he does it in the first movie. In the second movie, I think we see some really significant. Like I have a lot of complaints about the second movie, but one of the things I will I will contend is that the whole point of that movie, and this is to uh, Peter Quill's benefit and the rest of the movie's detriment, if you ask me. But the whole point that, <laughs> but the whole point that movie is that you see Quill finally work out and resolve his father issues. He sacrifices immortality for it. He lets go of all of his illusions when he realizes it will cost him the people that he loves, and he finally understands the concept of found family. Like that's the entire. That's like we're. My my complaint about Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is the whole movie basically presumes we all have a rooting interest in Peter Quill's yeah. personal growth as a human right. being. We'll, we'll get, and, yeah. and like, oh, we'll, we'll get there. So we'll get true. there. We'll get yeah. there. Um, uh, mm-hmm. A couple other points I want to make. Um, I'm, I'm not going to walk through the plot. We did that. There's a whole other episode people can listen. I'm not going to walk through all the characters <laughs> on the weekend. I, I did want to make a couple of points, again, that are kind of about perspective. And this is about rewatching it four years later, which is, first off, I recall at the time that there was a great deal of kind of surprise and controversy that they were going to attempt to do a movie with two completely CGI characters in Rocket and Groot. And mm. um, looking back on it now, like... Uh, does every movie have a completely CGI character? There may be a romantic comedy where where there are CGI characters. For all I know, at this point, um, <laughs> Rocket and Gr- Harry like, and Sally are CGI. Yeah, you don't even you don't even uh, think about it now. But it was a big deal at the time. And Rocket and Groot, uh, it has to be said, so well visualized, so well performed. They are mm-hmm. they are. In many ways, they steal the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And they are these CGI characters, apparently, you know, portrayed by James Gunn's brother wearing a funny, like, tall tree suit and Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper walking around with ping pong balls on him, I think. Um, no, I think Bradley Cooper basically, like, rolled into the studio, did a day's worth of work. And, yeah, yeah. I, know, I, know that, I know that the James Gunn brother was doubling He agreed to put the CGI rig on. He 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 agreed to put uh, Cooper agreed to put the CGI rig on for movie number two just so uh, they keep the facial expressions that must down. Be but it. for the first one, he just did straight fa- he just did straight line reading. Yeah. I, and I, by the way, as somebody who's been uh, paying attention to Bradley Cooper since he was on Alias, um, mm-hmm. I find Rocket's voice completely just I can't even tell that it's Bradley. I'm good with voices. It's just oh yeah, mm-hmm. I can't even tell that it's Bradley Cooper. I never I never think that it's Bradley Cooper. But anyway, so that that was one of my points is 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 uh, is Rocket and Groot. We might as well mention. I mean, Groot and Rocket kind of steal both movies, but they certainly yes. steal the first movie where you're like a tree, like that moment where the they're on Xandar and the bounty hunters, we meet the bounty hunters and it is a mm-hmm. talking raccoon and a tree. And you're like, what mm-hmm. am I watching? And, and the tree is drinking out of a fountain and the raccoon is pitching a fit over it. That's yeah. the best part. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's, it's one of the greatest introductions. Um, I, I think the way they introduce everybody is is just fantastic in that first movie. <laughs> yeah, they pick they pick everybody up along the way. We get to yeah. meet, you know, mm-hmm. we Gamora uh, tr- is trying to get the same MacGuffin that that uh, Rocket and Groot and uh, Peter are are getting, and then uh, we meet Drax. 
uh, later too, and he kind of falls in, and it is this series of they're they're just like how do they all meet, and they all end up on the same ship together. Um, oh, so the other thing I want to mention is the tone. We talked about the tone earlier, um, I, and this is one of the less favorable things I will have to say about this movie because I I, I actually. Um, first time I saw this movie, I thought it was okay. And then I watched it when it was released on video and I was like, oh, you know, I actually like this more. I, I don't know why. And it really kind of r- rose in my estimation. I have to say after four years revisiting it, it, it kind of fell back again where there are a lot of things about it where, and here's my theory, which is I think one of the things that this movie did so well was change the tone of Marvel, push Marvel into, into new directions. And you got your Ant-Man and Doctor Strange and Thor Ragnarok and all of that and Spider-Man Homecoming. You got these movies that are different genres, different tones, much more comedy out of Guardians. However, I think now in the context of all of the movies that have come after, Guardians loses the novelty of having that tone. And it feels it feels more rudimentary. It feels more messy. Um, there are a bunch of lines that clang. Um, Drax's line where he calls Gamora a whore after we've been told that he thinks everything is literal is just, it shouldn't be in there. I don't love when Quill calls Ronan a bitch at the end. I feel like Mm -hmm. that is just, I, I, and I feel this James Gunn, like with, he's just a little too bro-y, a little too rough edged, Mm -hmm. a little too far for it. But I have to give him credit because I think in many ways you could argue that the tone of Guardians and its success saved the Marvel Cinematic Universe from being a crashing bore. But mm-hmm. one of the problems about going first and breaking new ground is sometimes after the world moves down that path, you look back at where it started and you go, meh, it's not so great. And I kind of feel that way about Guardians. Like, it's good, well, but there are parts of it where I'm like, yeah, that didn't work. That doesn't go, you know, far enough. That goes too far. It's just, it's funny. It's just, it's funny that my, that four years later, I, I have a hard time feeling quite as positive about it. But because I, I absolutely endorse the fact that I think, I think it was very, very good that Marvel had the success with this, this risk that they took because it allowed them to take way more risks going forward. And it, I mean, seriously, look at the list of Marvel movies that were released in the order they were released in and you see this movie and then you see everything that happened after and you're like, oh, wow, that like, oh, yeah, that was that was the moment. Well, it's the standing on the shoulders of giants things. Sure. Um, Sure. I mean, it's, it's for me. I still enjoy the characters. I still enjoy the the humor part of it. I still enjoy much of the plot. I don't enjoy the big bad. I don't enjoy no. a lot of that stuff. It just doesn't gel. And again, we've already gone through that. Um, and it's but it's weird to me because and I I may have said this on the first episode. I don't remember, but I was surprised at the time when they hired James Gunn. I I I've never liked his work before it i've never liked his work outside of it but it kind of worked for me at the time now yeah i can see some of that and going mm, yeah i can see the hallmarks of some of his other work there Ooh, yeah not crazy about that uh, but i still i still like it this episode of the incomparable is brought to you in part by simple contacts you know it's great when an app takes a tiresome task and makes it easy that's what simple contacts is all about they're the easy way to renew your contact lens prescription without visiting a 
doctor and paying all those fees just to get a renewal of the stuff you've already got. You can reorder your contacts from anywhere in just minutes. All you need to do is complete Simple Contacts online self-guided vision test. It takes less than five minutes from wherever you are right now. No more doctor's offices. No more waiting rooms. We're wrapping up summer here in the summer of Marvel. And uh, just think of all the occasions you might need contacts if you can squeeze in a beach day or taking a late summer vacation. Maybe there's a wedding who knows? Uh, simple contacts can let you stock up. You don't want to run out and not be able to wear your contacts to any event you want to go to. You can order your favorite contact lens types and brands all from their website or their app. They've got all the lens brands you love with options for astigmatism, multifocal lenses, colored lenses, and more. You can order exactly what you need right from the palm of your hand whenever you want. The vision test is $20. Just for comparison, an appointment could cost you a couple hundred bucks just to get a renewal. You don't need to do that. You can save money and time. This is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You do need to visit your eye doctor periodically to make sure your eyes are okay. This is a replacement for going in to a doctor just to get your same contacts. Again, Simple Contacts will make sure your current prescription works and lets you see 2020. And then they renew your lenses based on that prescription. They're not writing new prescriptions. They're not checking out your eye health. You need to go to your eye doctor for that, just not for a simple renewal. As a listener to this show, you can get $20 off your first order. Go to simplecontacts.com slash Snell20, that's my name, and 20, or just enter snell two zero at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash Snell20, or use the code Snell20 for $20 off your first order. Thank you to Simple Contacts for supporting the incomparable. The, the, the sort of context going back to it affects how I think of it as like the first movie versus the second one, because I was different than you, Jason. When I first saw it in the theaters, I loved it. I thought it was so fun and interesting. Um, and I was really into it and I watched it a ton when it first came out on video. And so I've seen it the first one many times and I went to see the second one and I was like, I like that, but I didn't like it as much as the first one. But when I went back this week and rewatched both of them in a row, I was like, I think I like the second one better now because it is more mature Mm. and complicated. And while it doesn't, it didn't have the same kind of magic that the first one had when I watched it in 2014, I think it holds up better. I holds up better is an interesting. So I, I, um, I didn't really like volume two. It was fine, but it it was it was one of the least enthusiastic feelings I've had coming out of a Marvel movie. Where I'm like, yeah, mm. like I was I was a little let yeah. down because I I had built up the first one so much, and that is part of the interesting thing, right, about us revisiting these things is that you you pull it out of the context of expectations from the first movie, which you've know by heart, and then you go see the second one, and and I would agree. I think I liked Volume Two more than I thought I would, and I was let down by Volume One. I I think I think I still prefer the first movie, but uh, Quinn, you're absolutely right. Like there are things in in Volume Two where you can tell that it's a progression. Like we know how to make this movie better. We know these characters better. James Gunn had years to think about this movie instead of sort of being brought mm-hmm. in to brush up a screenplay that somebody else had written and then shoot it. Mm. I mean, my favorite part of the second movie might be the whole opening sequence and. The soundtrack. Uh, I love the soundtrack. So I, I, I realize this probably puts me on a hit list. I can't, 
I can't with Baby Groot. I feel oh. like it's. I feel like yep. it's such You're on the list, a, Lisa. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's such a naked play to the Funko Pop crowd. But why is that so bad, Lisa? <laughs> Funko, Funko Pop are basically precious moments figurines for nerds. That's why hey, Funko I'm Pops covering all my Funko Pops ears but, right now. But uh, I, I think, like, what I like is I, I like the the parenting thing. Like, I found it really fascinating. The um. Like basic volume two is all about parents and children. Yeah. Every one of the plot points in there is about parents and children. And um, my biggest complaint is that Drex, who among them is the only bereaved parent yes. in the group, doesn't get a big plot beat that that references that much. There is one moment on the steps where he's with Mantis and they're watching the lakes and he says... You remind me of my daughter. And I went to weep. This reminds me of a time I took her to see the Forgotten Lakes in my homeworld. You remind me of my daughter. She goes, why? Because I'm hideous. And he says, no, because you're innocent. And then she does the empath thing and realizes he's carrying around this huge burden of grief. That is literally the only moment we see. And it is kind of baffling to me that in a movie where the impetus is Peter Quill has the feels for his, for his surrogate dad and his biological one. Like it's kind of baffling that we don't have a father weighing in on the other side of the story with the kind of motivations that drive either um ego the planet or um i'm blanking on his name um kurt russell no oh, that's no no oh, blue oh, guy oh, oh. blue oh, guy with the whistle yondu. yondu thank yeah. you <laughs> the like, goddamn that, mary poppins yeah but you know with the and and, and i do find it fascinating that we see I, I find it kind of adorable that rocket is 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 basically like it is is basically groot's de facto parent like i i love that but groot is just so aggressively cute and i'm like oh it's cloying there are some nice moments where you see that it's team parenting like there's a nice moment where somebody hands hands groot or does groot reach out and like it hands him to Drax and then Drax kind of holds him and, and kind of pats his back and all There's of that. that. Yeah. To the, to the, the, the song at the end, that's a, it where, takes a you superhero know, he, team. He climbs onto Gamora for a little bit and then wants to go to Drax. So going yeah. back to that, that opening scene, like I, I, um, one of my favorite episodes of Buffy is the Zeppo where everything, all the battles with the giant creatures happen in the background. And I was chuckling when I watched this movie because it's very much like that, which is <laughs> mm-hmm. our whole focus is on what baby Groot is doing. And yeah. meanwhile, there was a giant octopus space monster that they're fighting in the background. You keep seeing like, quill flying around and firing lasers and things like that but we're just worried about what Groot is doing Drax is getting beaten with a tentacle like you see him just slam into the ground and I think that's a really great creative choice to do it that way and and, I also like that they brought back the creature from the first sequence the one that Peter Quill was using as a microphone the first time is the creature that that Right, they're crawling Groot, around there all that, over the place. That, and Groot hates them, and so he he goes in the chase with them. Yep. I mean, I'm not going to say that he's not cute. I just felt like like the cute was overused at times. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll lay it on, on the table. My feeling about Volume 2 is that everything that ha- happens on Ego's planet is really boring. Um, and it, I just, it, I find it incredibly boring. I think it was a mistake. I don't think they should have gone to Ego's planet and had Chris Pratt have a walk around. I'd love to hear a dissenting opinion to that, <laughs> but that's my feeling. However, I've forgotten 
just how funny the scene is. I had forgotten where um, Rocket and Yondu are locked up and they have to convince Baby Groot how to get a thing. And, yes. and it's like five <laughs> minutes of him dragging like tables and a severed toe, <laughs> toe. and various yeah, other things. Yeah, that's a fantastic and scene. And I just, I was, I was watching it today. I was just crying <laughs> at how funny that scene is. So that's a, a put an award for Baby Groot. But I will say that doesn't happen on Ego's planet. That happens on the Ravager ship. So I, I no, there's I, the, yeah. the the one scene on Ego's planet that really legitimately creeps me out. Um, and there are two wonderful horror movie shots in this film. Is the first one is when they um, throw chips from Sons of Anarchy out the airlock. And then you see he's just the latest in a long line of bodies that the mutineers have thrown out. Oh, yeah. And you just see them silently spinning in space. And it's like, oh, that's it's it's such a beautifully creepy set piece. I just I love it because it's just horrifying. You know, imagine all those people dying like that. And then the scene where Nebula and Gamora discover the mountain of bones. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. I love that moment. I love that moment so much. And when Nebula's like, yeah, we got to get off this planet. And instantly it's my sister and I are leaving now. We have we have buried all of our differences. We are a team and we are a team. Get the F off the planet. (laughs) Taking the Olympic medal and leaving. (laughs) Off we go. (laughs) So, Quinn, what what resonated with you about volume two this time in, in going back? What were the things that really brought it up in your estimation? Honestly, the number one thing by far is Gamora and Nebula's relationship. I love how much all of this movie is about parents and children and and the family and the guardians being a family and all that kind of stuff. But really what interests me the most is the sister relationship between Nebula and Gamora. Um, partially because I have a sister who I'm very close in age to and I'm very close to, and our relationship is thankfully nothing like Nebula and Gamora's, but I still, I'm still very drawn to sister relationships in media. And I love that you kind of had some setup in the first movie and you, they, they established that, you know, they're, both um, abused daughters of Thanos and they were stolen from their home worlds and they hate each other. But then in volume two, you actually really get into dive into this and they have serious conflict with each other and then also get to team up, which is the best. I love it when these familiar relationships have conflicts, but then they are forced to team up for the greater good or, you know, greater survival as it may be. And I love seeing that develop throughout the movie. Yeah. I'm not sure their relationship I mean, you had to take a lot on faith in the first movie. It was like, all right, they're sisters, but Thanos and how does it all work? And, you know, in watching that again, I'm like, I'm not sure it's all clear here. In the second movie, it's clear. Like, we get a clear snapshot of how it worked, what the relationship was, why um, Nebula resents Gamora. And uh, when they're talking and also when they're fighting... They're having a conversation about their roles as children of Thanos, as sisters. Um, and, and it is, no, it's, it's, it's very well done. It, it, and it, it sets yeah. up one of the most brutal scenes in Avengers Infinity War. Like, I, oh, would, yes. I would argue that the Thanos-Gamora plot would not work unless you had that resolution with Gamora and Nebula, because Thanos uses that against them later in, mm-hmm. in, and, in a in the movie, I have to be honest. The scene, uh, I'm trying. I'm like, what is our spoiler policy on this? Um, but the scene where Thanos effectively uses Gamora's feelings for Nebula against her to coerce her into what he wants her to do, um, that was to me like the most gut wrenching s- scene in the movie. You know, just the mm-hmm. way that he cynically presses those buttons and 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 makes them go. Well, volume and, volume two yeah. really. Mm-hmm. 
especially since Infinity War has to be because of all the characters and it has to do some shorthand. Like there is, there are many important things about Nebula and Gamora in Infinity War that would not make sense were it not for all the character work that gets done in Volume in this, Two in this movie. Yeah. Also, on a lighter note, the scene where um, they have just acquired Nebula and she's like, "I'm hungry. Can I have that root?" And Gamora goes, "No, it's not ripe." And also, "I hate you." Is just like that's something I would say to my sister, and I love it. And and she yeah. he eats the root later and spits it out because it's, it's not ripe. It's not ripe. It's <laughs> such like, a great callback. Listen, you just gotta listen. <laughs> um, yeah, if I'm if I'm being honest, it, it is it is the Kurt Russell stuff that bothers me in Volume Two. Like I get what they're trying to do. I get that at the core of Peter's story is his childhood and his mom. And the fact that we have this mystery from the first movie about like who his father really is, but, and it's not Kurt Russell's fault. It's just that ego is, he's kind of boring and that they're trying to do like a Darth Vader or like emperor and Luke Skywalker thing where it's like, look at all the power and, and, and uh, I can tempt you, but it's also beautiful. And I have a whole museum that I've made about myself and I'm going to, I'm going to show you, and I'm going to play on all your desires because you want to have a dad and now you can have a dad. And, you know, I, I, yeah, I think maybe part of it is my view of, of, of Peter Quill is like, I, at no point am I like, oh no, Peter Quill, don't be tempted. No, it's like, mm-hmm. I never think that about him. I don't think that, first of all, mm-hmm. it's not a character I'm worried about in that level. Yeah. Like, he, is he really going to take this all that seriously? I never feel that he's got a real conflict internally. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure he has an internal. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I don't think he's deep enough to have an internal. Right? I don't. I don't think there's anything to Peter Quill but his surface and a little bit of confusion. And so you get yeah. a bunch of like he's being tempted scenes that just <laughs> fall flat. And then there's the whole Mantis thing where Mantis is an interesting character. She has some really nice moments. The moment with Drax and his and his uh, his mourning over his wife and child, which was basically a joke and slashed character motivator in the first movie, um, is given a you know real depth and sadness, which is great. The 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 part that I don't like about mantis is where she's the well i need to tell you something oh we got interrupted no i'm not going to tell you now tell us no i'm not going to tell you tell us no i'm not going to tell you and it's just like there it it feels like the movie is literally just killing time in the middle when they're on the planet Uh, yeah i don't think they did a good job of establishing how abused she was how abused and isolated um because there, there are a few references here and there. He found her alone in a larval state. She's a flea with a purpose on the back of a dog. Right. And I think maybe what they were trying to go for is um, Ego took took a child off a planet, isolated her, and exploited her, and has made her complicit in him being okay with murdering all these children. Um, maybe they're going for that, but... Because we never see him being overtly abusive to her, it's hard to draw. It's hard to draw those dots and understand why she's so afraid of him, or why she feels like she can't act the way we we don't see how he enforces her dependence on him. And I think if we had, then maybe her hesitation and her fear would have made more sense from a plot perspective, and so would her crisis of confidence. Because there's that whole thing where she's like, "I can't keep him asleep. He's too powerful." And I'm like, "What is your?" purpose living fully on the back of a planet you know you make this man sleep on a regular basis yeah you can do this but um again i feel like we don't they don't not that i'm like ooh, i'm really the same people get abused on screen because that's totally not the case but i think that they did not build the case for how thoroughly ego had isolated and abused her 
and how the guardians are, are effectively helping her break her conditioning. Like they, they don't do enough with that because it's the Peter Quill show in this movie, the same way where again, I'm going to complain about how Drax, who is the one bereaved parent in the crew, doesn't get, um, it's not made more clear in this movie. And I wish it were, I wish it were made clearer, clearer that he's going to take on Mantis as an adoptive daughter. Um, it felt like, well, it felt like they're like, well, we might want to keep it open in case there's some sort of interspecies romance going on. Like it felt like they had to kind of keep that in there as a studio note, but I would have, I, I thought there would be a better resolution for the care, those characters. If he had been like, she reminds me of my daughter, ergo, ego, ergo, she's now my new daughter. And she would have been, I would like a father. Um, but I, I feel like he was shortchanged through the movie, frankly. You know, I like what they do with Gamora in the movie. I like what they do with Rocket, even though it's a little too obvious. But um, I, I feel like a couple characters got significantly shortchanged. And so their actions make no sense except in service to the plot. The um, climactic resolution of this story also is it's the like they're in the caves in Ego's planet. And there's a funny bit, which is trying to get Groot to set off the bomb, which is very funny. There's the, the extended bit where... Uh, Rocket asks Quill if he's got some tape. Oh God, that's so funny! And he spends several funny. minutes in the middle. Why and again, did you, you can't ask see, about Scotch tape? You don't get if to didn't have any. You don't get to see the fight. <laughs> you hear what's going on as Quill zips from place to place while things are exploding, mm-hmm. asking people if they have tape. And then he finally comes back and says, "Nobody's got any tape." Um, but <laughs> that aside. There's a lot of explosions and a lot of people going through various caverns and there's people have to go up and people have to come down and Yondu has to come down from the from space and come down in Mm -hmm. and all that. And again, it's one of those things where while it's competently done, like I kind of just don't care. That's what I found Mm. myself doing is like (laughs) it it just it didn't it didn't feel it, it felt like spectacle. And that's about it, yeah. which is too bad. Mm-hmm. But so it's big and dumb and loud and wet and on fire all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that I mean that's that's the stuff that gets me down. The stuff that, that excites me is all the rest of it. Like mm-hmm. I think, oh, I I, sh- I, I didn't mention Taserface. Um, oh God, <laughs> the the whole rocket, like rocket, just like finding a, a thing. He's tied to a chair. He's completely helpless. What's he gonna do? And he's like, "Well, they didn't they didn't cover my mouth, so I can talk." Yeah. And he mm-hmm. sing, he immediately focuses on the fact that this guy is named Taserface, and he mm-hmm. won't he won't let go of that. And he totally undermines him in front of everybody else. It's like such a great scene for this. Compu- Again, it's not there. It's a computer generated yeah. character, but the performance mm-hmm. is great. It looks great. Um, it is, Sean Gunn is like the MVP all, of this franchise, I think. Yeah, all of that stuff is um, just, uh, it's just, uh, the, all that stuff is very well done. And I like, I like all of those parts of it. I think uh, with the, with the Ravagers and down on the planet, uh, when Nebula comes in, all that stuff really works for me. It's just, you know, the ego stuff, like I, I get why they did it, but in, in viewing it back, it feels kind of like a misstep. Like they, like this is the story you wanted to tell and like mm-hmm. I, I guess for mm-hmm. james gunn his connection to peter quill and his feeling about the kind of like father and son issues is something he wanted to explore but you know we've got a lot of daddy issues in the marvel cinematic universe already for one and this doesn't feel particularly u- unique it just feels kind of belabored to me i don't yeah. know it's too bad i do like the relationship that it, in contrast with 
uh, Quill's relationship with Yondu, though, because yeah. I, I agree with you that probably the, the ego plotline is the weakest in the movie, but they do get to use that to push Yondu out in contrast of like, hey, you know, this Ravager that in the first movie um, was sort of presented, you know, as a joke and he's wouldn't let them eat you and that's supposed to be his great gift to you and you and you get to see <laughs> again greater depth behind the character and adding more context from the first movie and like oh he actually was your father figure all along because you've got a super weird messed up life and maybe it's kind of bad that this is the best you're going to get but also he genuinely cares about you mm-hmm. now yondu is handled so well in this movie michael rooker michael rooker just is great. He's a great actor. I love see he's so interesting. He's so outlandish and yet also uh has some grounding. It's just such a such a fascinating uh guy, fascinating face to watch, in this case blue face, but face to watch. Mm. Oh, the scene with the robot hooker is actually one of my favorites. Just his body language that entire scene and just the the, the he doesn't say a word through it at all. But he's shirtless and he's standing there and then you see her power down and slump and then you see him slump in response and look out the window. And it's snowing. And it's super like yes, we're in space, yes. but it's super depressing. <laughs> yes, it's such a great it's such a great scene. I mean, I will come to being really irritated by Sylvester Stallone's general diction throughout this whole movie because it was just like it's it's Sylvester Stallone's you have, career. You have like yeah. a billion dollar CGI budget and you can use none of it to make Sylvester Stallone sound comprehensible. Nope, it can't be done. Um, it can't be done. It's, we don't but have that technology. Yeah. Just, but just, um, it's just but I just I I, I liked um, I I I liked his performance a whole lot. Um, I enjoy um, the two things I especially enjoy. One, I enjoy that he adds more color to the complete and utter horror of what Cree culture has to be like, because he mentions being sold into slavery to fuel their wars right. as a child, child, um, child slave soldier. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that little piece of horror, which I was like, ooh, you know, you can come back and mind that later. That will be suitably right. appalling for which, Guardians of the Galaxy Which also means 6. he feels this kinship with Quill, which yeah. we're retconning what happened in the first movie and realizing well, he what feels you- this kinship with Rocket, too, because Rocket was conscripted into a... a, a into- Rocket was made to something he never wanted to be, and so was Yondu. That's a great. Um, that is a great moment where he basically says, "I understand you," and he comes all the way back around. You know he's doing it, but he comes all the way back around to say, "I've just described myself and you." Yeah. And you're like, "Ah, yeah. yeah." But it hits Rocket too, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is enjoyable, and Rocket gets it in that moment. Uh, but but you get the connection. Like it's made clear here too that that Yondu realized what Ego was doing to the kids that he was bringing. And that's why he kept Peter. Well, yeah. Right. Which and we, he, was and not he what never we had told, been told Quill before. for his own protection because yeah. he didn't want Quill to go find him. And he knew what it was like yeah. to be a kid and to be sold off to some horrible fate because that happened to him. So, yeah, Yondu gets completely kind of rebuilt, which, of course, means Yondu also gets killed and everybody's very sad at the end. But he gets what a way to go. He gets to save Peter mm-hmm. one last time. Right. My two favorite mayhem scenes in this movie. I mean, the credits, the credit, like the, the, you said, the credits are just next level. And I feel like they set the tone. But my two favorite mayhem scenes are when Rocket takes on the Ravagers in the woods on a, on a oh. moonlit night. Like, like jumping around just, from tree to tree. And well, you see him scurry like a raccoon. And it's just such a great contrast to the technological brilliancy displays. And there's that one really lovely shot of like the treetops and the moon. And then you just see one group of Ravagers being flung in the air by a concussive bomb. And then another group <laughs> and then the first group again. And then the second group. So I love that mayhem. And I also love the mayhem when Yondu puts the new fin on and then basically executes everybody on the, on the, on the ship just by whistling. Mm-hmm. And, and you have that callback 
um, when you see him walking in slow-mo with the leather flaps on his jacket flaring by and he's got um, Rocket next to him. And it's a direct call back to the shot that you had of the Guardians of the Galaxy when they when they get ready to execute their their MacGuffin play. And I was like, oh, that's nice. They, they've based, And I was like, oh, the imagery says he's a Guardian of the Galaxy. And then, you know, later it's codified when Groot says it. But it's... Um, it's one of the plots of the movie I like the best, and I like what a huge contrast he is to Ego and how Peter finally realizes yeah. it. But but I, I get I got very tired of the movie being the Peter Quill show, if that makes sense. I would have really liked it if everybody else had had more character beats, because the whole point is they're on they're an ensemble, they're a family. Not uh-huh. every movie has to be about a blonde guy named Chris. So <laughs> I'm gonna give a shout out now to the uh the music selections. I do I enjoy how weird the popular music selections are um in this movie at some point is it is it rocket who says do you have the do you have quills music stored away on a you know one of the one of the scans one of the backups or something which is good because it's like a little nod to like how do those tapes still work after 20 years and it's like no 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 no. um and and it's because he wants to have quills music playing while they kill all the ravagers and that's that's kind of fun but we we get the classic obviously from his mixtapes that his mom made in both of these movies, all of these songs that are yeah, classics of one sort or other, they're not necessarily, um, you know, all like universally beloved, but they're certainly they evoke emotions and they evoke an era that seems really kind of uh, strange juxtaposed with, you know, big budget sci-fi movie action. And that's very clever and very intentional. I could not tell you how amused i still am at how um the lyrics of brandy are Mm -hmm. uh like key to the philosophy of ego the living planet i think that's right amazing Mm -hmm. and so bizarre that the my life my love and my lady are the sea this is the sea peter i'm like okay wow that is yeah okay Yacht Rock is taking over the universe, apparently. I, I just love using um, Come a Little Bit Closer for that whole sequence where Yondu is executing everyone on the ship. Because it's it's kind of the inverse of the song, the or the lyrics of the song, but it's also just a really good song. Mm-hmm. But everything, I mean, in both movies, just the, the way things are choreographed to the music, the way everything is scored, and it's, it's really nice work. They're my favorite soundtracks in all the Marvel movies easily they're completely integral to what guardians is and if you you, if you Uh you couldn't make a guardians movie without this kind of soundtrack and i I really kind of hope that we end up having like five guardians movies and they have to come up with increasingly weird reasons why there is this music playing because they really (laughs) leaned into it in the second one of having rocket actively play them and i want it to be to be even more and more of a thing with every movie well I, i would imagine that somehow um yondu's Buddy, whose name escapes me now, but it's the guy who is uh, from Gilmore Girls. Sean Gunn. Sean Gunn playing Craglin. He, he, Craglin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has the Zune and he says it has 300 songs on it. So I'd like to think that, mm-hmm. that there's a Craglin mm-hmm. mega mix on the Zune that Peter will be able to listen to. Might even have some music that Peter hasn't heard yet uh, from the 90s, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, or the 80s. Who, who, who can tell? Um, Actually, you talk about you talk about tone and what means Guardians of the Galaxy. I think it's telling, um, and and I do want to talk about this a little bit in Avengers: Infinity War, which has a whole big chunk that is really the first time outside of Guardians that we've seen the Guardians of the Galaxy. And Infinity War makes a 
really tries to keep in with the tone right down to using unusual music selections so when we first see the guardians of the galaxy there there is i don't even remember what song it is but there is a song playing that makes you feel immediately at home like oh yeah we're with the guardians of the galaxy now now i i I know what we're getting here and it really makes you you know kind of relieved that this is what the guardians of the galaxy are even though that you know scene ends up with thor and we end up with thor tagging along with rocket and you know all these kind of weird combinations um that are i think delightful and it's fun because they 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 managed to go through two complete movies with the guardians of the galaxy basically on their own before having them interact with anybody else from the marvel universe and you know that's a nice investment that gets to pay off when you drop Thor in among them. And Peter is offended by how pretty Thor is. And he's totally not that oh. interesting. So, <laughs> Oh, when you, when you meet, when they meet up with Spider-Man they, and, and he discovers that Kevin Bacon is not revered as a God or, or uh-huh. whichever 1980s actor it was. He's like, no, that movie was never cool. And he's like, shut up. It was. Because of yeah. Footloose. Because the Footloose, he wants to, that's a, that's Peter Quill's go-to story for people in space yeah. is a, the plot synopsis of Footloose. Yeah. And when, when, when this 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 kid the spider kid tells him no no and just watching the outrage um right because you get the impression that peter from these other movies that peter has had essentially no interaction with earth mm-hmm. since he left yeah. as a child no. and in infinity right. war he suddenly has interaction with people from earth and it's uh it's a very different uh, kind of feeling to him but yeah the thor pairing like I don't. If you told me that the key, the capstone, or the the penultimate episode of Marvel's twenty plus movie storyline, there's like a key plot point that involves Thor and Rocket Raccoon going on a little <laughs> side quest. I'd be like, "What are you talking about?" And it's, it's to meet a giant Peter Dinklage. A giant no Peter less. Dinklage. It's my favorite thing in that movie. I think it's I, terrific. It's, yeah, it's so good. And, and of course, the emotional core of Infinity War, I mean, Infinity War is Thanos's story, right? It is the story of the antihero of Thanos, and it's his relationship with his daughters. It is, you know, he needs to make the sacrifice, and his sacrifice is Gamora. We see sort of how he adopted Gamora, where she came from, he, that he really does have feelings for her, as messed up as a guy as he is. Um, and so Gamora and Nebula are super important, unsurprisingly, given that Thanos is their father, but super important part of Infinity War. Um, and and like we said earlier, you, you need that sisterly relationship from volume two to really kind of understand it but it's it's super important and and that you know is in a movie with a bunch of kind of shocking uh, moments i think the you know the maybe a most affecting pair of scenes in that movie are thanos at the top of the cliff with gamora and the red skull okay <laughs> and <laughs> And um, and that last moment that people forget about, that last mm-hmm. moment, which is probably inside the soul gem, where oh, he sees yeah. her has, as a child in kind of that orange, and she asks if he did it. Like, these are, not only my theories are important for the next movie, but um, super important to that that, that emotional element of, of mm-hmm. Thanos' story, that this, why he cares so much about his daughter. 
the Guardians are pretty much the source of all of my favorite and least favorite moments in Infinity War because my favorite fun moments are when they're first interacting with the other characters because there's, I feel like the Guardians movies have been pretty separate from this whole Avengers plot line totally. mega movie thing. So mm-hmm. when, when they clash together, especially the scene with Quill and Drax and Rocket, um, with, I think it's Strange and, uh, Spider-Man and Tony, and no one has any idea what's going on until they figure out they all know Thor. It's just so funny. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. and, uh, <laughs> and then they have also the emotional core of the movie, of course, with Thanos and his daughters. But it is also my least favorite part, which is when Peter Quill becomes... I mean, uh, we call him, Lisa earlier was calling him like a lovable space idiot, but he becomes the most unlovable space idiot and basically ruins everything. Yeah. And Nebula comes across as a character who's always been kind of like the seventh most important character in these films in infinity war she is also important and in fact is is she not the only other one left on the ruins of titan after yes. it all goes down she's the nebula is there with tony stark yeah that's a that that's yep. the galaxy's fun couple and rocket is left on earth is the only one left alive on earth from the team which is also really interesting it goes back to the abandonment fears at the end of guardians of the galaxy too because remember he does all that yelling and pushing people away thing so that he can't be hurt when they leave. And now he's been deserted by everybody. And so you're going to have a raccoon with PTSD and Nebula, who has grudges against literally everything. And um, who knows what Avengers on the board. It's going to be glorious. <laughs> so overall, looking back, having having revisited these movies, I'm, I, I'll, I'd like to go around and just sort of ask everybody for their, their kind of take on... Um, on how they're feeling about these movies now, sort of like a little summation, if you've got it, um, having revisited it, and what what your thoughts are that have changed and what remains the same. David, what are you what are you thinking about Guardians of the Galaxy now? I, you know, I still enjoy the surprise of the first one, even though I know, you know, I've seen it what ten times by now. Um, but compared to the other Marvel films, I enjoy the surprise of it. I enjoy the irreverence of it. Uh, I enjoy Peter Serafinowicz because how can I not? Oh yeah. Um, so wasted and so yeah i want more let's let's have a movie of just him um and the nova core nova, yes uh, they're uh, right. well annihilated mm-hmm. and you know do i enjoy the plot i enjoy elements of the plot i enjoy sections of the movie the the prison escape is that, wonderful that's a great bit yeah great um, great scheme you know i need that guy's legs yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, I had to transfer thirty thousand credits. <laughs> one one of my favorite genres is the the heist, the caper, the escape. You know, this is this is a Marvel film that can get away with it. This and Ant Man, they they hit my favorite kinds of films, right? And uh, you know, again, not crazy about the villain, uh, not crazy about Peter Quill not growing in any recognizable form. Uh, the second one has a lot of enjoyable things, but I think it's, it's more, I, I appreciate the emotional story as opposed to the actual plot or any of the action. It is richer emotionally. And I, I do like that. I just kind of wish the whole thing were better. Mm-hmm. I guess I wish it were, I wish it were the whole package, you know. Quinn, what about you? How would you sum up your feelings kind of overall now that you've had a chance to revisit? For me, the first Guardians movie is like comfort food. I've seen it many times and it's on a short list of movies that I'll put on if I just 
want to sort of watch something and not think about it. It's fun. It's funny. It's got really good visuals. Um, I, I mean, I love space movies and science fiction. And so I'm really into, you know, space fights. And so I really like that. And for me, it almost kind of exists like in that capsule now of like my comfort food movie, regardless of what is actually like the best and the worst about it. And then, like I said before, I think in retrospect, I, I looking at them, both side by side, I think I somewhat controversially, it sounds like actually prefer the second movie in terms of the actual mm. story. And I am looking forward to revisiting that in the future, um, continually ho- as much as I have with the first. Yeah. I think, I think it, it's mm-hmm. not that controversial. It's, it's everybody gets to yeah. have their own opinion about it. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I, and like I said, it, it's kind of number two has, has raised, uh, up a little bit in my in my estimation upon rewatch that the, I I had sort of focused mm-hmm. on the oh, parts definitely. that didn't work, and this yeah. time I was able. I, and I think this is what happened when I started rewatching the first one is I was able to get over the fact that there are parts of it that don't work and be like, yeah, those parts don't work, and focus on the delightful parts that I enjoyed, and and it, that changes how I I view it. So Lisa, yeah, your uh, overall thoughts upon revisiting? I think well, you know, I I rewatched the first movie. And I thought, wow, without this, there would have been no Thor Ragnarok because the aesthetics, totally. completely, right. the aesthetics completely set it up. Um, the sensibility. What I love and appreciate about both Guardians movies is how they blew the doors off of the Marvel verse and uh, pointed out that you're not confined to eight people on Earth who may or may not have a given combination of superpowers, but there's a whole big universe out there with all sorts of weird and fascinating industries and cultural mores and economies and space pirates and space enforcers. And, and um, we can tell, and you can tell those stories too. And those stories will be riveting and fun and tie loosely into the shared experience. So I love them for that. Um, in terms of the first two movies, I don't know if I could say, oh, this one is better than that one, because both movies have their flaws and their big strengths that I think help build the Marvel verse as a whole. Um, I am a little disturbed that I've begun to be able to detect the James Gunn trademarks in the movies because, um, mm. well, cause you get to a point with these, these where you're like, Oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And I think the thing I enjoyed originally about the guardians of the galaxy movies was feeling surprised because I didn't know them. I didn't know those trademarks. And now that I do, um, right. yeah, but, but I, I, I think that these movies in a way, made it possible for the mcu to to it well it proved and made it possible that you could move beyond your standard superhero configurations and you could take a flyer totally on on a crime mm. ca- on a crime caper like ant-man and you could take a flyer on um a colonialism metaphor loosely disguised as a road trip like it like thor ragnarok is and um black panther is absolutely possible because space aliens are apparently easier to digest than a prosperous african nation um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know i i think we can give guardians of the galaxy credit for for laying down the creative roadmap but then saying all right we can improve on that going down the line i'd be i'm really curious to see what guardians of the galaxy 3 is going to look like and and so on and so forth from there because right. where do you build where do you build after um where do you build after these movies where do you build after thanos is presumably defeated and and with a possible shake-up in creative yeah teams? With, with james gunn <laughs> presumably you know removed and presumably will 
will remain so as director there it's unclear what state the screenplay is in although he was working on a screenplay so there's probably at least drafts of a screenplay i think um i have a higher confidence in that first off because i agree with lisa i think there's some james gunn things that you see in these two movies and there are probably some of those things are things that i don't really love that i kind of Mm -hmm. tolerate to get the things the places where he did push the envelope i think successfully i i believe very strongly that infinity war shows that there are lots of people who get what the guardians tone is now and i can't imagine that changing i I, you know it, it will people get it like and and that's that's that imprint from james gunn is going to be there even if he's not and you know you know who i would love to see take over volume three taika Taika watiti Watiti would be great right he would he would do it even better (laughs) right because he made he made guardians of the galaxy three sort of it's thor ragnarok basically so we'll we'll have to see what happens with that but they will they will be back and presumably parts of them at least rocket and uh, nebula will be in uh in uh, the next avengers movie as well but so there's the, the guardians of the galaxy will return and that's funny i just wanted to say that because that's how the first movie ends and when it was being screened and first came out everybody was like what do they mean the guardians of the galaxy will return like surely they're not going to make another one of these and then it was a hit and of course they made more of them but at the time that <laughs> mm-hmm. was like presumptuous on the part yeah. of marvel and james gunn to say the guardians will return but of course they're going to return it was it was a delightful oh. surprise and i would yes i would i would put a stake in the ground like lisa said that um the marvel universe would not have been as successful creatively mm-hmm. maybe financially mm-hmm. but creatively would not have shown the the breadth would not have been able to have all the different kinds of tone the different kinds of stories being told if this movie hadn't worked right they tried it yeah. and it worked and it let them have that latitude to embrace humor without being campy too yeah absolutely it's so sweetly sincere there's nothing ironic in these movies and i really like i really like that um this is actually one of the things i like about the mcu in general is um they don't ever get knowingly ironic or snarky about um, the subject matter, and uh, they never make the audience feel dumb for wanting to get into it and go along with it. And Guardians of the Galaxy is just great, where they're like, of course you want to be in a bar inside a giant um, ancient celestial skull. Who wouldn't? Yeah, who, Let's see how they race animals. Who wouldn't? You know? the, um, yeah. In fact, Drax's role as a person who's impervious to metaphors and irony i think really goes a long way that that's the movie saying like we we don't take ourselves too seriously but we're also like drax laughs more than anybody but we're not we're like not gonna play the game of just everything being ironically detached and you know that's like laying the card down on the table saying see see here drax doesn't like doesn't get your jokes <laughs> so, it's like it's good i like that i appreciate that that's what I, that's what i like about about drax um the uh and occasionally he does a, a wrestling move because mm-hmm. he is a wrestler but, but just a, yeah. all right well guardian the guardians of the galaxy will return and we will also return i think if i'm counting correctly we're down to the end there'll be one more one more episode of the summer of marvel because all great things including summer must come to an end but until then i would like to thank my guests uh, for being here on this episode lisa schmeiser thank you i'm mary poppins (laughs) y'all david lord thank you she took my line (laughs) you can go i didn't mean to do a mutiny (laughs) 
Oh, Kirk from Gilmore Girls, will you ever learn? Yeah. And uh, Quinn Rose, thank you so much. I am Groot. Oh, oh you excellent. Took, and you took, my, you took my line there. I had to sneak it in right at the end. <laughs> thank you to everybody out there for listening. I've been your host, Jason Snell. We'll see you next week for more. One last little gasp of the Summer of Marvel. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.